Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Peter Berg's new film, Patriot's Day. Drawn from real-life accounts, the film brings us back to the horrific Boston Marathon bombings of April 15, 2013, when terrorists set off two pressure cooker bombs near the marathon's finish line, killing three civilians and injuring an estimated 264 others. The film weaves together the stories of the heroic first responders and the investigators who raced against the clock to hunt down the bombers before they could strike again. In addition to Patriot's Day, Mr. Berg's credits include the feature films Deepwater Horizon, Lone Survivor, Very Bad Things, The Rundown, Friday Night Lights, The Kingdom, Hancock, King's Ransom, and Battleship, the television movies Virtuality and Bloodline, the pilot episodes for the television series Wonderland, Friday Night Lights, Prime Suspect, and The Leftovers, and episodes of the television series Chicago Hope, 30 for 30, and Entourage. Following a recent screening of Patriot's Day at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Berg spoke with fellow director Edward Zwick about the challenges he faced while making the film. During their conversation, Mr. Berg discusses striving for authenticity in the film, which involved spending time reaching out to the Boston community before filming started, capturing what he describes as the personality of the Watertown gunfight, and his collaboration with composers Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who brought their characteristic edge to the film's score. Good evening. You know, um, after a movie like this, I find that rather than go to the uh, traditional um, how did it begin and why did you decide to do it, when you're feeling emotional after, after a movie like this, I think sometimes it's best to stay in that moment and try to talk about some of the feelings of it. And, you know, to that end, I when you and I were talking last night, I mentioned something. I mentioned something that had been very meaningful to me in my youth. It was a, a, a novel by Thornton Wilder called The Bridge at San Luis Rey, which is about a bridge that um, uh, went out in South America where five people, five strangers, had all come together and just happened to be on the bridge at the same time. And at the end of that, um, at the end of the... Uh, the book, he writes a paragraph, and I just was going to read the paragraph and then ask you to talk about it. He says, but soon we shall die, and all memory of those five will have left the earth, and we ourselves shall be loved for a while and forgotten, but the love will have been enough. All these impulses of love return to the love that made them. Even memory is not necessarily for love. There is a land of the living and the land of the dead, and the bridge is love the only survival, the only meaning. Wow. Go. <laughs> Ouch. I, uh, that's beautiful. Um, thank you all, first of all, for coming. 
uh, in the holiday season. I know everybody's busy, so I, I appreciate it so much. Thank you very much, Ed. I've known you a long time, and it means a lot to me for you to do this. Um, I feel a lot of love. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think uh, when when uh, Mark Wahlberg and I were finishing up Deepwater Horizon, um, at one when he came up to me and he asked me if if I would go to Boston with him, and I said why? I said well I want to I want to talk to you about doing a film about the marathon bombing, <clears throat> and I didn't really have an opinion, but I, I could tell Mark really felt something, so I went with him uh, and spent. Um, I think like four days in Boston and you know Mark really is so beloved in that community that uh, people very quickly he put, he put me in front of a lot of different people who were uh, affected by the marathon bombing police commissioners FBI agents uh, hospital workers um, this young Chinese immigrant named Danny Meng who's just the most amazing human being I've ever met in my life period uh, and so ma many of the, the parents of um, the, the victims, uh, uh, people who lost their children, um, and survivors who lost their legs. And I started having this experience with this group of people who had been through something, you know, <clears throat> very violent and very intense um, uh, and, and very confusing. And the impression that that just I kept getting and the emotion that kept coming up was was quite simply love that these people had managed to endure what is unfortunately becoming this new gruesome reality you know like we're no longer shocked when we wake up and turn on the news and one of these mass uh, casualty attacks has occurred and and to be able to go to Boston with Mark and meet these extraordinary people and and see that you know, if you're looking to make sense of this kind of nonsensical, horrific experience, the thing that does resonate is that love really thrives. And the intended effect of these terrorists is, is to destroy us and to disrupt us and, and to cause us to retreat into fear. But what we saw in Boston was just the opposite. So I love that quote you wrote. And, and we really did make this to celebrate that love. You know, um, I, I did something once before about terrorism, um, and something that was really interesting to me is how um, already ahead of the curve some of the law enforcement were in anticipation of that. And something happened in Boston that was very unique, and, and, and I think controversial too, which is the decision um, to lock down the entire city. And you talk about that a little bit in the movie. Mm -hmm. and. And uh, you know, was that something that you that you talked to these guys about about that moment? Um, we did. We talked to uh, uh, Governor Patrick, who uh, Michael Beach plays in the film, and you know, and I, I asked him. Uh, you know, I said, well, you locked down your whole town, man. Wow. Yeah. And I don't think that would have happened in Los Angeles <laughs> at all. I think it would have been like chaos. And maybe New York would have sort of followed along with it for about an hour. But Boston did it, you know. I'm like, well, he's like, oh, we did. We sure did. And I said, well, you know, how did you come to that decision? And it was actually um, a, a, not as kind of cool and sexy as it sounds. 
because they, they knew that they had Johar Zarnayev, the younger brother. They believed they have him, had him contained in a relatively small area. But then they had the Department of Transportation guy there who said, well, you know, there's one bus line. That if you got on this bus line, he could have gotten to this train line. If you got to the train line, he, and it became that, so, well, they were going to lock down a bus line, then a train line. And then they realized that it, there, it was, it was just, uh, impossible to predict if if he wasn't where they thought he was it was impossible to predict it and the governor said can we lock down the city and everybody said sure we'll lock it down and um you know i i did i did when when mark my my memory of the boston uh, saga prior to going up there and with mark was uh i think it was a bumper sticker i saw it might have been a t-shirt that said uh, you know boston if you us we will lock up our city hunt you down and kill you <laughs> and and i'm all about the love i, I am <laughs> but i i thought that was uh memorable well that raises a whole other issue which is more directorial i think which is to say you know you're talking about something of extraordinary scale and you're trying to give it geographic clarity at the same time of that big scale you're also trying to focus on all these lives and and what kind of a challenge was that? Um, it, it definitely the the uh, you know th this is the third film that that I've done um, that ha that that's nonfiction that has uh, involved a pretty significant loss of life. Um, and part of the process of making these kinds of films is a pretty heavy um, pre-production. You know where it's we're writing the script, but we're also going into the community very deeply and meeting um, people like Patrick and Jessica Downs, who you see in the film, or the Wolfington family, or the families of the victims, the four people who were killed, the, the, the police that Sean Collier worked with, the police officer from MIT, actually going to MIT um, and meeting with the president, and we were the first film that ever got <clears throat> permission to film, which I didn't know on MIT. Even Goodwill Hunting had to steal their shots, but we were, uh, <clears throat> we were, a, allowed to go there so there's so much meeting of these of these different you know individuals and in boston it's not really just boston pd because you've got boston pd watertown pd cambridge pd mit uh the department of fish and game transit fbi state police and they're all very territorial so they all were involved very you know significantly in that those four days so we spent um, a tremendous amount of time reaching out to the community. Though you have to be pretty honest and transparent. These are very smart people who are still grieving. Um, we have, um, you know, sometimes we joke, you know, and I, you and I both produced and as directors, we're, we're all directors in here, right? Right. So we know, like sometimes producers that we don't know what they do for us, right? <laughs> like they're they're. Are there any producers in the room? Are there any producers? Okay, so talk candidly. So sometimes producers are really a big pain in the ass for us. In this case, we had a really great producers. We had a great studio in CBS and a great team from from CBS who could help because I couldn't do it all by myself. And every day, something, some someone would get upset or someone would be concerned. Someone in the community. So I I was trying to make a movie. And I needed a lot of help to manage um, the city of Boston, and I had a lot of help. You know, um, I was just thinking about about the uh, the need 
to stay, to cleave close to the truth based on all the research that you do. And then the obligatories of doing a two-hour movie and how each day and each scene you face a, a set of choices about um, you know, the compression of one thing, the conflation of two incidents together, the shortening or the adding of dialogue that you could only have imagined. And you face that all the time. Um, you know, I think um, so, so much of this event was documented and that was an, an advantage in terms of not having to make up uh, so that much dialogue and we, we could talk to people uh, and, and you know whether it's Ed Davis the commissioner or it's uh, Rick Deloria who's the head of the FBI we could talk to them and, and get you know very pre pretty accurate um, you know recaps of what the dialogue was um, with with uh, the the Tsarnaev brothers that was obviously a bit trickier including Catherine Russell who I found to be such a fascinating character who <clears throat> very hard to understand and create a scenario where she didn't under she she wasn't aware of something and you know the FBI could never prove it, but you know we knew that this interrogation with with her and the CIA or organization that that's who interrogated her in the film occurred. Um, they wouldn't tell us what they said, but they played literally a game of hot and cold with us. So they said, well, we we asked her whether there were any more bombs. So we wrote this scene. And we'd send it to them, and they'd say, no, this is very cold. This is this a little warm. <laughs> this is actually hot. So we'd write more. And they, oh, that's very hot. And it was literally hot and cold. I was like, like back in sixth grade with the CIA. Um, and it ended up being one of my favorite scenes. Um, the, the biggest, um, I think, you know, liberty that we ended up taking was actually creating a composite character for Mark Wahlberg, because there was no single police officer as a narrative threat. Yeah, and there was, and there was yes, and there, there was no narrative threat, and there was no super cop. You know, we didn't have Jason Bourne running in and, and whooping. Ass. Um, it would, but there were several police officers, two in particular, who one was very involved in in Boylston Street when the bombs went off, who kind of took control, and that's the the first. That was a cop named Danny Keeler. And is Danny Keeler in here? Okay, good. So he did, he did a lot, but he didn't do all of it. Um, and, and these guys are very, you know, big characters, big personality guys. So we had to deal, you know, make him understand that. Yeah, how do they react to the fact that they were used as part well, of composites? Well, they, they, when you talk about not wanting to get into what a phrase called, that I like called stolen valor. Have you heard that? Where, yeah, sure. you know, you assign somebody credit for, a bunch of heroic actions they didn't do. If you really say, you know, to, to someone, look, you know, you did a lot, but you really want to take from, and then of course any reasonable person will say no, which they didn't always <laughs> say. They were like, well, I'll take some dollars, okay. Um, but no, they were very, they were very, they were they were very you know willing to not have that stolen valor. So with Mark, we did take two two police officers who were both extraordinary guys and and combine that. I, I had a conversation with J.K. about about the shootout and about what he did about Pugliese, and that's it's one of the most remarkable moments in the movie. And that, as best I can tell, with with one certain exception about some eye gouging, it was literally almost you know um, you know literally round for round, 7,000 rounds expended, yeah. literally the bombs thrown, yeah. that was pretty damn close. Yeah, we we um, we spent a, a whole 
bunch of time at the Watertown Police Department with the five officers. And, you know, we started with, we drew a, um, like a, you know, we taped off part of the floor in their conference room with, to make the, the, um, Laurel, Laurel Street. And we used toy police cars and stick figures and just went man for man trying to capture each, the experience of everyone. We listened to, um, on YouTube, there, there's not good visual, but you could hear mm. the, the gunfight and get a sense of how many rounds were fired and you hear these bombs. And, um, you know, we walked that street then up and down it over and over until we had a, a pretty accurate sense. And, you know, with that gunfight and, you know, I always think like you, you, you need to find out the personality of a gunfight. You know, every, every fight, like a love scene or an argument or, you know, a family dinner scene, you, there's, there's got to be a personality to it. And the personality of, of what happened in Watertown was, you know, the, these cops, they weren't tough cops. You know, these were, they, they were used to doing traffic stops and a guy had been, you know, drunk and was sitting in his car, passed out that they were, you know, they're, they're great people, but they had never fired their weapons in the line of duty. And suddenly, you know, they're excited. They think they have a stolen car and that's a big deal. Right. And they're ready to go on a stolen car. And then, you know, the, uh, you know, exit, you know, Tamerlan Zarnayev and the bombs. And these guys were hanging on, you know, and that was really what right. we tried to capture and not get caught up. You know, the guns are, are whatever, you know, it's always cool to have guns going on a set, but we, we tried to hold on to, the fear and the human element of that gunfight. Mm -hmm. When you're when you're trying to to figure out a, a story that you know where the end is known, and you're working toward it, you're trying to um, create some structure, but the structure is not typical because it's not a, it's not your three act structure. It, it it's very different. So how did you deal with that? That was challenging because. You know, if you, if you, if you divorce yourself from the emotional reality of this story, and this is a real story, and this is about terrorism, and, you know, you look at it objectively as, as a filmmaker and a, or a writer, the climax of the film comes too early, right? Yep. So you've got this big gunfight in Watertown, and then <clears throat> you essentially have every gun in New England hunting a, a 17 year old kid, a little bit older, a 19 year old kid, who's, you know, hiding in a boat. So there, there was never a question about, are they going to get him? Um, and that was something that, you know, I struggled with a bit, especially when I, in the in the early stages of writing the script and working with uh, my, my, my writing partner, Ness Matt Cook. You know, we knew that was a challenge. Um, and I think knowing that Big Poppy was going to come on at the end and say what he said, that, you know, when you're always looking for, I, I don't know how you are, but I'm always looking for some kind of lifeline early on. Like, is, do I have any idea of how this thing's going to end? make it to this point. Yeah. Yes. And like, I, you never totally know. So you look for it, right? And like, to be able to look at that footage of Big Poppy saying, you know, this, this is our city. Okay. That felt good. Mm -hmm. So it was a question of like, how do we get there? You know, and I, I felt that, um, uh, early on, you know, we, we had, we're lucky we had, uh, uh, Michael Rodotsky and Jeff Fager, who run 60 Minutes, and they were producers, and they're great guys. And I, I was pretty sure that I wanted to have the real ending of the film be uh, throw it all back to the real, real people. And something I realized that you know, if I was going to do interviews with the real people, I had the best interviewers in the world, 
and just sitting there. That's why I say producers can really be awesome and, and do wonderful things. So I talked to Jeff Fager, who's a great guy, who's got a picture of him arm wrestling Putin above right. his desk. If you ever go to his office, he's a tough guy. Um, I think he let Putin win, but I'm not sure. But the arm wrestling. But um, they, I said, well, you guys do these interviews. And they went and did a ton of really, really great interviews. And when I saw, I started getting the footage in and we started editing them, then I could kind of build that so ending and then trim things to, to get there quicker. But it was tricky because the climax, as, as a writer, you're going, well, you wish the fight had happened at the very end, but it didn't. Uh, you know, it, it, it occurs to me that, that, that technology has had this very interesting effect. Um, you see it particularly this year. I, I don't know if anybody here has seen Jackie yet, or if you've seen it, Pete, because you, you've been kind of busy. But, but he does something that you do too, which is there's um, the ability now, because of the sophistication and the ease of roto and, and you know, shooting stocks in, in, in the DI to emulate each other to literally place, you know, fictional actors within yeah. real settings and to blur those lines and um, I think you did it very well here I think they do it I don't know if any people but seen that movie they do it very well there as well and I think it's very interesting to think about that as a um, certainly the blessings of it and also the dangers of it because you know you could you know again completely falsify things mm -hmm. because you have utter license to do what you want but but how much did you think about that in terms of pre-production in terms of literally planning this footage, I was going to create this thing to put within it. You know, I always, um, I always have these big ideas, and I get all excited about them in pre-production. And, and in in the case of, uh, I mean, it, it always happens with me. And now my crew just laugh at me because I come up with these big, big ideas sitting around. And and we had found um, some real shots that the FBI gave us from Boylston Street that were from cell phones, and they're pretty amazing. Like. 15 second running shots of, you know, just sort of chaos right after the bombs went off. And I was going to put Wahlberg in those shots, interacting with the real people. And, you know, we'd blocked it out and rehearsed it. And the visual effects company had made Mark, you know, rehearse on a green screen stage, going from dot to dot to dot. And, and, I just got bored with it. Like, like a week before we were ready to do it, I'm like, I'm not doing this. I don't want to do it. It feels gimmicky, and no matter how real it is, I just don't want to do it. And that's on Deepwater Horizon. I devised a five-hour Steadicam shot. The whole movie was one shot, basically, in my mind. And and I like pulled the plug on that too, um, because I you just, are using some. Sec you are using some real footage and, and crowd replacement, yes. it seems to me. Well, we did. So then, things. because what, what I, it's just not my style. I tend to not, it's just, it, it's a complete personal choice. And if I see, um, uh, Alfonso Coran, you know, for example, does incredible shots, it's just, that's his style. I don't, I don't, it's not my style. Um, but there were so much when that, when we got this footage, the cell phone footage and the surveillance footage, and when I saw how much my actors looked like the Sarnayev brothers and I could go back and forth, yeah. there's so much real footage in the movie. I don't know if, if you guys were aware of that, but I assume you were, that, you know, all that stuff on Boylston Street with the white hat, black hat, that's yeah. the real Sarnayev brothers, the gas station, the bank. I mean, the fact that this younger brother went to Whole Foods an hour and a half after and we had this footage of him, you know, changing a bottle of milk. That I really liked doing. Yeah. And... 
um, Bob has something interesting that we added, um, uh, when we did CG shots of Boylston Street, we did a lot of, we would add ash and smoke and debris mm -hmm. to put, and um, when we used the real shots, um, I, we, I, they didn't quite match because we, mm -hmm. there ended up being more debris and ashes in our shots than the real shots. So I asked the head of this uh, visual effects company, um, Zero Effects, it's a wonderful little company in Boston that does great work. And um, I said, will you, you know, just make the match, so add a little more embers into the real footage. And they said, okay, and then they came back a couple weeks later and they said, look, our guys are all from Boston. Mm. They're not gonna manipulate the real shots. They don't feel right about that. And I had to respect that, you know? Mm -hmm. they, they were like, if you're gonna use this, you can't, we're not gonna touch it. Mm. Out of respect for, you know, what was in those shots. So, you know, it, it, I, it's not under 100% consistent, but I kind of like that. Yeah, me too. Um, one thing that you do do, I think, um, with with your composers, is create this feeling of of imminence very early, and you use them to great effect to try to have to sustain things which are often going to cross narratives from one person to the other, or trying to create sequences uh, when you know th there might not have been a sequence, and I think you use them as, as glue in many times. Um, is that something you talked about? Yeah, I mean. I've, I don't think I've ever done a film that I haven't done my temp score with Trent, Trent Reznor and Atticus. They're just so good, and um, so my, when when I got them, I've never used them before. So I, it, it's a process to get them. They're they're like a hard date, you know. You got to really work and charm them and buy them flowers and flirt, not be very charming. And I did that, which I'm not good at. And I did it, um, and they said yes. And I remember when I went and told Colby Parker Jr. is my editor. Who, oh, it, he went crazy. I mean, he just started jumping up and down, screaming and bouncing around the room. And it was like, it was very, it was very, the, the, one of the best parts was just watching the editor's reaction when he heard. But, you know, these guys then, I knew with Trent and Atticus, tension and edge wouldn't be a problem. I mean, they're so good at that. Um, so we talked about, Letting them do something a little more um, peaceful and gentle in the beginning and then starting to add elements and I mean if if you really listen to what they did It's so extraordinary and it starts out very tender and sweet and then it starts this Trent Reznor Yeah Disturbing throbbing thing starts to emerge and when we got it. It was just like wow you know, They're very talented, but ironically the sweetness too and and the the, the emotional stuff is the payoff at the end as well. Yeah. And I know that, I mean, I've you've been drawn to something like, I know you've used explosions in the sky before. Yeah. Um, and um, I don't know if you've used, used Philip Glass, but he's sort of the dean of all of that. Yeah. And it's it's actually a different style of composition that seems to be sort of... Yeah, it started on um, Friday Night Lights when I wanted to um, do football, but not, not I wanted to find a more emotional um, mm -hmm. you know, access point musically something that felt more soulful and, and less aggro. And there's a guy um, named Brian Reitzel who had done uh, Sofia Coppola's film Lost in Translation. I, I remember loving that score. And I found him, and I'm like, you know, would you do a football movie? And he's so not a football guy. You know, he's like this hipster kind of Echo Park, Silver Lake guy. And uh, he's like, well, do you want me to do a football movie? I'm like, yeah, I think it would be. He's like, will you let me do it my way? I'm like, and he went... 
and but like hitchhiked around Texas, literally hitchhiked, and went to Midland. And he called me. He's like, I found this band, Explosions in the Sky. They're going to do all the music. And he played me it, and I got it right away. I, mm. you know, was smart. I didn't discover it. It wasn't my, but I was smart enough to understand it. I, that it was it was a good idea. Mm. And that was a that was a an interesting learning you know moment for me. That it can be really interesting to to kind of mess with the ex musical expectations. Right. So to even get Trent and Atticus and say, sweeten this up, you know, and don't ho try hold, re show restraint before you attack. Right. Um, I think was, I think it was effective. Um, I, we have time for a couple of questions. If anybody's got one, they want to just yell out. Is there a hand out there? Anybody? Oh, don't jump up all at once. Right. <laughs> yeah. She's asking about the casting. casting. Um, Okay, so I, I hate, uh, you know, I used to be an actor, and he never cast me, by the way. I auditioned for him. He claimed this evening that he read for me, and I, did. I didn't cast him. I'm not sure this is true. <laughs> I, I really, because uh, I fall in love with almost every actor. I have so much empathy for how tough it is. Um, so I just try to cast everyone, you know, and like, like I, and then people, Pete, you already cast that role three times. I mean, no, but, and um, I, I really, I, 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 I so hate saying no to actors, you know, especially because there's so many act, good actors. And I, I just know from being on that side. So I basically tell Sheila Jaffe, I'm just cast the movie. Like, like, like if there's a real problem, I say, Sheila, who should I cast? I mean, I know I want to cast Mark. And Sheila's like, I found your Danny Magnus kid, Jimmy, that, you know, that played the um, Danny Magnus. She's like, I got him. I go, let me see a tape. Obviously, it was, he was fantastic. Um, um, whether it's, you know, Kevin Bacon just looks so much. She's like, look, Kevin Bacon looks just like him. Just cast, okay, great, let's cast him. John Goodman looks just like Ed Davis. Okay, great, let's cast him. I don't want to meet John, Kevin Bacon, you know, it's like, and, and then not give him the part. It'd just be, be horrible. So I, uh, and then with actresses, I'm horrible because I fall in love with all of them. You know, they're, the actresses are so charming when they come in that I can't even go, I can't even talk to actresses. Um, but I, I really do, you know, I, my, my approach to, to filmmaking has become like, I've worked with the same crew over and over and I trust them so much. And I try to stay, you know, and if, if, I, w I will see some actors. I mean, I'm, I'm not being literal, but I'm, I, I really don't like, I won't see 50 actors. I don't agonize. I tend to make very quick, impulsive decisions and have good people around me uh, to check me on it before, you know, sometimes I'm like, you know. But, you know, I would say, I would say that actually uh, you, you're describing as something improvisational, yeah. really. And then I think that actually pertains to a lot of your technique, even in shooting a movie. Because I think it happened, we were talking just backstage before, about how you solve problems of schedule and time with the developing of, of a style that allows actors to do a certain thing in the way that feels right, and yet you're going to find a way to sort of gang it yeah. and get it. And I do make sure that any actor I work with knows, like I do have a pretty weird style of filming. I shoot three cameras. I don't cut. We go over and over. We'll make up scenes in the middle of it. It's very playful um, and, and uh, improvisational. And I do check and make sure that everyone's okay with that because some actors hate it. Um, but um, so I really hate auditioning actors, though. 
Yeah, back there. Yeah, um, he, he's asked me how about the Zarnaya brothers. Um, you know, uh, I was able to do a lot of uh, research on them, um, and I, I spent a lot of time. The older brother wanted to represent the U.S. Uh, Olympic team and the uh, uh, boxing team. He was actually a pretty good boxer. I spent a lot of time with his boxing trainer um, uh, and several other people that knew him from that, that gym uh, in Boston. Um, I spent some time with some of uh, Johar's friends and two of his ex-girlfriends. Um, spent time with the landlord that owned that apartment that they all lived in. Um, uh, read the transcripts from Johar's trial. And so I, I had a bunch of, a lot of information. I thought I had a, a pretty decent understanding of who they were, what their patterns of life were like, um, what their personalities were like, what the dynamic between the two of them. I had a decent understanding of how the radicalization occurred and how how it, it got to, and then it became a question of well, okay, what do I really think about these these guys, and, and what what do I want the takeaway to be, you know? And at the end of the day, I don't consider them, uh, having done this research, to be in any way righteous men. I don't consider them to be Muslim. I consider them to be narcissistic sociopaths and, and cowards. And I find what they did to be just disgusting on every level that being said well I, I do and i think it's important that we we recognize that the fact that they were so assimilated into american culture this wasn't like muhammad atta coming over 9-11 with the saudis blowing up the towers and you know sneaking in well the simple fact that they wanted to re he wanted to represent the united the states US. on the boxing team and he was furious if you i mean it's all public info he was on his way to representing the U.S., and some people had it out for him, and he lost a fight, and he felt that was because he was Muslim, and that then started a... But I, I felt that it was worth taking a look at these two individuals. I wanted to make sure we didn't glamorize them, that we portrayed them as the, you know, the, the as I said earlier, those types of... assign them those types of characteristics, and I didn't want their, their role to de to uh, overpower the other storylines in the film. But I did think the fact that they were as assimilated as they were into our country made them fair game for some representation in the film. Uh, I think I think they've got another movie coming in. I just want to say that it's really remarkable that this marks the third time that you've managed to make a movie um, that's really about our experience, that's about the truth and the search for the truth. And I think it's it's so admirable, and I only hope you get to keep doing it. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you all. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this DGA Q&A. Check out past episodes of the podcast by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. We'll have a lot more episodes coming your way over the next several weeks, so stay tuned. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Director's Cut on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by The Director's Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.